Lord, we love you. I thank you for your word. And Jesus, we cling to you. We cling to you, Father, Holy Spirit. We cling to you. We're asking that right now you would shine light from the word upon our soul. You'd release truth. The liberty that comes from knowing truth. God, I'm asking, touch us with understanding and revelation today. Holy Spirit, oh, we love you. You are welcome here, Holy Spirit. Lord, we desire to hold the word above us and let the word of God speak to us. What is truth? What is light? And Lord, stand here with me, hold my hand, and let me speak as an oracle this morning. I need your help. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. We are on us, uh, our second week of a series that we're taking a look at Psalm 27, talking about uh, really the context and the, the, the overall message of this chapter. I was saying last week that, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Psalm 27, but really only in one verse, which is kind of the, the well-known verse in Psalm 27, verse 4, the one thing I ask, this one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze on His beauty and inquire in His temple. That is a critical verse for us in the house of prayer. There's many layers of revelation to it, but it's not all there is about Psalm 27. And we felt several weeks ago that the Lord was speaking this passage to us that he's inviting us into a season of Psalm 27. And so I wanted to take some time and go really uh, slow and, 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 and try to go uh, deep into this chapter to see, well, what does Psalm 27, the whole chapter, mean? And as I began to get in, I'd read it many times, but as I really began to get under the surface of it, I thought, wow, that really, the rest of the chapter really uh, gives greater light to the context of verse 4. And so as is the case with all Scripture, it's really good to look at the whole thing, look at the, the context of a verse, and not just yank a verse out of, out of context and sort of apply it. And so uh, Psalm 27 uh, is really an interesting chapter, and we talked about last week. I'll just give a little bit of a review. Probably written in David's later years, very likely written when he was on the run from his son Absalom, who had led a mutiny and was overthrowing the kingdom, and David was on the way out. He was actually running away. And Absalom was mustering uh, uh, an army to come against David. And, and so very likely we have the words of David as an aged man while he's in a time of trouble, while he's experiencing uh, massive betrayal. And, and really he's seeing the promises that the Lord has given his life. They're, they're crumbling because the Lord had promised him that he would be king. And here he is having to leave Jerusalem. He's leaving the throne. He's only got 600 folks with him. And, and Absalom has seized the kingdom. All Israel has gotten on the side of his son. Absalom has deceived the people that he's, that, that, saying that, he, that Absalom was a man of justice and that David was a man of injustice. And everybody had gotten on Absalom's side, it seemed. And David was having to leave the throne. As even as far as crossing the Jordan River, which is miles and miles outside of Jerusalem. And so he writes this psalm in that context. And so then when you read the, the language, and we talked about last week, the Lord is my light and my salvation. See, the Lord is my light and my salvation, that's a nice little cliche, Christian cliche. We kind of throw it out there. But it's actually a prophetic verse of Scripture written by David in a time when he's experiencing incredible trial, incredible challenge, betrayal, I mean, it would be very, very easy to, uh, in, in the scenario that David was in, to sort of give up hope. But there he is with his son leading the armies of Israel against him. And he says, I don't care. The Lord is my light. He's my guide. And the Lord is my salvation. He's my rescuer. Whom shall I fear? What a great proclamation in the middle of, I mean, I mean just the most challenging kind of scenario you can imagine. Whom shall I be afraid of? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. And, uh, and I just, again, said last week, uh, you know, this is one of those verses when I, when I begin to look at it, I go, whoa, I'm not sure how much, how good I am on that. Like, uh, you know, I'm doing, sometimes I feel like the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And then sometimes 
I'm not so great at it. So I'm like, Lord, I want this not just to be revelation to my mind. I want it to be truth to my heart so that I'm actually able to walk this out and live the verses that I believe. Don't you want a Christianity where you actually live what you believe? I mean, I don't want the version where I sort of know the truth, but, I, my, but what I live is sort of just, you know, five steps below what I actually know to be real. And, and I believe that the Lord has given us the scripture, not just as a, an instruction piece or a guide or a measuring stick to show us how far we are off, but he's given it to us as living truth that's able to actually pierce our heart so that we're actually able to live what the scripture says, whether it be in the area of faith and trust and confidence, like what David's talking here, or whether it's in the area of healing or provision or protection or whatever it is, I think we're actually supposed to have this living and active word dwelling in us richly and actually producing fruit through our life that is equivalent to what we read in the pages. I might be a little naive, maybe old fashioned, but I believe the Bible's for today. Imagine that. So, these verses have begun to really take on a powerful, another level of power to my own heart. Last week, we we identified four different parts of the chapter. If you're taking notes, just give them to you again. Verse 1 and 2 is a past deliverance, a past testimony. He goes, I'm not going to afraid the Lord's the strength in my life. He goes, when the wicked came against me to eat of my flesh, to devour me. That's what that means, to kill me. It's, it's really got twofold, uh, the eat up my flesh phrase, I took a look at that. It's got like twofold, uh, 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 there's twofold understanding to that, that phrase, eat up my flesh. It, it definitely means destroy me in the sense of kill me, destroy me. But it also means, to, there's, a, there's another time where Job uses that same phrase and he's talking about the accusations of people against him. He says, whom shall I fear when men are trying to kill me or when men are arrayed against me speaking evil of me? Sometimes when people come against you and they're speaking evil of you, you just wish they'd kill you. <laughs> it's like that might even be easier, just go be with Jesus than have to deal with <laughs> accusations and antagonistic sort of, you know, verbal attacks. He goes, in either situation, I've seen the Lord cause my enemies to stumble and fall. Both situations, ones that were speaking negatively and ones that were trying to physically come. He goes, I've seen the, the Lord deliver me by causing my enemies to stumble and fall. He goes, he is my salvation. He's my fortress. He's my strength. And so there it is. Verse one and two, it's a past deliverance. Verse three through five. It's David's proclamation of confidence in a future deliverance. And so he explains it. He says, listen, though an army may encamp against me, because my heart won't fear, the war may rise against me. Even in this, I will be confident. What a crazy thing to say. Think about that. What if an army showed up on your front doorstep and camped against you with the sole purpose of assassinating you? That's what he's talking about. He goes, though an army come against me, he goes, I won't be afraid. I'm going to be confident in God even in that. I mean, I can't think of something more challenging. Trained military assassins coming to kill you. No, no, I'm not going to be afraid of that. (laughs) Imagine you had green berets, like 10,000 of them, canvassing your neighborhood for you. I mean, it's outlandish to our minds, but David, that's his reality. He said, oh, no, though an army besiege me, I will not fear. The war rage against me. Even in this, I will be confident. Why, David? Why would you be confident in that? He goes, because one thing I've asked, and this one thing I seek. I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He goes, I want to gaze. I want to behold the beauty of the Lord. And I want to inquire in his temple. He goes, because in the day of trouble... He shall hide me in his pavilion. In the time of trouble, he's going to hide me in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And what we see in verse 4 and 5 is how David is able to be confident. I'll get in that in just a minute. So there we have it. That's the second part. Verse 3 through 5, he says, he goes, in a future time, he goes, when challenges, even war, he goes, 
I'll be confident. Why is he even saying war? Because he knows his son is going to bring an army against him in a minute. So he's making a faith statement. I like that. And then in verse 6 through 12, he uh, prays and declares faith in God to deliver him in the, in the current situation. And then in verse 13 and 14, he does what he always does. He gives a little instruction, which I, I appreciate, David, for teaching us. It's helpful. And, and, and as is David's case, and somebody pointed out to me, which is totally right, he is instructing us and himself. He's, you know, he's the guy that in the middle of his own depression, he goes, why are you downcast, oh, my soul? Put your hope in God, man. He's speaking to himself. And he does it again here. He goes, man, I've been through so much. I would have fainted unless I believed it. I'd see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He goes, wait, I say on the Lord. He'll strengthen you. He's talking, you know, he's talking to us and himself. He'll strengthen you, man. Wait. <laughs> wait, I say on the Lord. And that's where we have a hard time sometimes is being patient in the Lord's deliverance. And I'm studying through these verses. As I'm studying through these verses, I'm realizing that God has a little different picture of victory than me and you have. We're going to always be led in his triumph in Christ Jesus. But in a minute, we're going to find out that his triumph in Christ Jesus looks a lot different than our triumph in Christ Jesus and what we think it might be. So I want to take a look this week. We're going to look at verse 3 through 5. But before we do that, I want to share a dream I had last night. It's interesting how the Lord will uh, do that. He'll give you a dream to speak to you about the Scriptures. And, and somebody might say, well, you had a dream about the Scripture here because you were thinking about it because you had to preach on it in the morning. And I just very honestly will tell you, I wasn't really thinking about this morning's message when I went to bed last night. I was thinking about how the Bulldogs beat Kentucky. Praise God. I was excited that the dogs have won now three in a row, and they got off their four-game losing streak. And, you know, if we get a few losses over there at South Carolina, we might win the SEC East. So that's what I was thinking about as I went to bed. I wasn't really meditating on Psalm 27. I hope that doesn't crush your pedestal picture of me. But that's just the truth. I wasn't thinking about the one army besieged me. I was thinking about go dogs, sick them, roo, 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 roo. All right. <laughs> All right. So here's my dream. This is a pretty intense dream. I am with Alan Hood. Alan is the, the director of IHOPU. And in the dream, he and I are preaching open air in a downtown city area. I don't know the city. I don't believe it was Kansas City, don't believe it was Atlanta. And it was as if Alan had been leading an outreach in this city. And, and he and I were connecting uh, prior to that uh, day's outreach. And I had a word from the Lord that I was going to share. So uh, another guy preached first. I met him and then Alan had me up to speak. And, and basically I get up. I sort of just give a few introductory words. And I make a statement, something about like, God is powerful, or just a generic kind of praise statement. And as I say, God is powerful, it's like on cue, the sky fills with military planes. And it's, it's more than, it's hundreds. It's, it's enough that we all that were in the gathering, we, the preaching stops and everybody begins to look. And I draw attention to it and everybody is stunned. And almost instantly, the, uh, the city streets are filled with military personnel. And it's evident that they are looking for explosives. They're looking for bombs. And somewhere in this commotion, we hear a bomb go off several blocks away. It shakes things. And the military guys are so focus on getting the bombs off, uh, get, finding the bomb, that it occurs to me, these guys aren't even telling us to take shelter. Like, it's that urgent. Like, we probably need to go away or something, but they're not even paying attention to us. All they're doing is trying to get these bombs out of there. Second part of the dream, um, Alan and I make our way back to wherever I was staying, and I've been staying, in the dream, I've been staying at this apartment complex, this high-rise kind of apartment complex, and we get into the complex, 
And from the, the window of the, of the apartment, I'm able to look and I see this path in the city where these bombs have just blown up probably three or four city blocks and everything is completely burned over in three or four city blocks. And basically the, um, the extent of the damage, it came right up to, but it didn't touch the, the building that I was in. And I could see, it was almost like three or four blocks of this downtown area of buildings had been ex- just blown up and burnt over. And so we're having a conversation and the conversation goes this way, that about 20 U.S. cities had been hit with a simultaneous terrorist attack. They'd been stockpiling bombs in the bottoms of these um, buildings and warehouses and they all went off at the same time. And basically everybody was trying to adapt to uh, life now, trying to figure out how to do life in a time of intense terror attack across our nation. I'll give you one, uh, there's several other details I'm not sharing. One detail we'll share for whatever reason in the dream. I was talking to a guy and he said he was from Pennsylvania. And I said, well, what kind of damage was done in Pennsylvania? And he said, none. And my wife said, well, that's because William Penn was a man of God and God protected Pennsylvania. Well, after, you know, she said that this morning. So, um, it was also, it was obvious that communication lines were down. I was trying to figure out how to get home to Atlanta and I couldn't figure, communication and travel was down and I couldn't figure out how to get back. And uh, it was in current day. I'll just say it that way. It was in current day. It was obviously now. And so I woke up this morning going, whoa, that's intense dream. I mean, I, and by the way, I'm not the one that has tons of apocalyptic dreams. You know, um, some people do. That's not me. This is probably the first time I've ever had a apocalyptic style dream. Now, am I proclaiming that there is a terrorist attack in our country? No, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that my dream from last night really tuned me into these verses. And as I began to read this again this morning, my heart began to uh, really connect to these verses in a way that I hadn't before. And I'll just say this, I don't know that there'll be any kind of an attack or something of that nature that, that, that I had in my dream last night, but I, I do want to live with my heart so connected to the Lord that I'm truly able to have the perspective that David has uh, if there were to be some sort of massive upheaval like I had in my dream. David is experiencing a massive upheaval and he's able to say these things with all truth. The question for me and for us is, am I able to say these things with all truth when it's no longer just a theory, but it actually has to be practice, you know, praxis in my life, actually something I actually practice. So I share the dream with you, not to try to position myself as the prophet of the next terrorist attack. That's not the point. The point is that I really feel like the Lord might have just given me that to help tune in the proclamation of verse 3, 4, and 5 in a little sharper way this morning. Does that make sense? So let's take again now a look at verse 3 through 5. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. See, the dream kind of helps make that a little bit more vivid. The war may rise against me. In this, I will be confident. Even in this is the idea. That's, that's what the commentators tell us. David, David's saying, even, in, even if a, a war comes against me, even in this, I will be confident. One thing, and, and see verse 4, it's critical you see this. Verse 4 is David's explanation. Because the question after verse 1, 2, and 3 is, How? How will you how could you be confident if a war came against you? How, David? Explain that to us. He goes, here's how. One thing have I asked. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. 
And so he goes on and, and gives us more about this confidence that he's got. He goes, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me. Now, how do you know, David, that he's going to hide you? He goes, because I've dwelled in the house of the Lord and I've come to know what he's like. I've inquired of the Lord and I've beheld his glory. I've come and, and gotten before the Lord and intimately engaged with him, inquired in his temple for, for my life. He goes, and I know what he's like, and I know the way he is towards me, and I, I know this for sure, that I can trust his protection and his provision. Therefore, I am fearlessly confident in, even in the Lord in even the worst situations. Beloved, that's where I want to be. Fearlessly confident in the Lord regardless of the, of the trial and the challenges that we face. See, this, is, this has to be, uh, for, for believers that live in closed countries, overseas, in China, and, and places like the Philippines, for instance, Indonesia, uh, I mean, there's many, many countries, you know, any of the, the um, is, Islamic bloc countries, for believers that live there, this isn't just a theoretical, nice little verse to help you through. This is daily bread. <laughs> How are we going to get through today the fact that they're hunting us down and they want to kill us? He goes, I am going to dwell in the house of the Lord. I'm going to behold his majesty. My heart will be instructed in the name and the nature of God. And from there, oh, I will be confident. I'm going to inquire. I'm going to ask him about things. I'm going to hear what he says. I'm going to find out what he's like. And I'm going to know him. And I'm going to trust him. Even in the worst scenario, he goes, I'll be confident. He goes, I'll be fearless because I know my God. That is critical for people that live in a war zone. Beloved, I want to tell you something. It's critical for people that don't live in a war zone. I like what John Piper says. He says, life is a war. It's not only a war, but it's always a war. And we have got to realize that you know, though we may not at this time have been experiencing intense physical pressures in the sense of warfare, I tell you, there is an enemy that hates us, that's trying to encamp an army against us in the spirit, and it could actually sometime, however, be a natural reality. We have to be able to trust our God in a place of fearless confidence, even in that. And so we go, David, how do you do it? He goes, because I've gotten in his presence and I've learned of his nature, and I trust him. He goes, I know this, that in a time of trouble, he'll hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle. He's going to hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Now, this is a major theme of David's writings. Massive. I mean, throughout the Psalms, over and over and over and over, David talks about the Lord being his defender, being his shield, being his rear guard, being his fortress, the name of the Lord being a high tower they can run in and the righteous are saved in it. David never seeing the righteous forsaken of their seed begging for bread. Psalm 91, he has made the Lord his secret, he's made the Lord his dwelling place. He will dwell in the secret place of the most high. David over and over and over and over, he proclaims his trust, his fearless confidence in the Lord's protection and deliverance. And what it boils down to for us is this. It's really two points. Do we believe in the Lord's ability to take care of us? And do we believe in the Lord's good intentions concerning us in a time of trial? Most of us believe God is able. The question we kind of wrestle with is, is he willing and is he kind? You know? We know he's able. I mean, we, God can do anything. Create the universe, creates the human spirit, puts it in people, you know, creates billions and billions of stars and solar systems. Of course he's able. God's able to do anything. We get that point. Of course everybody would almost, I mean, virtually everybody says, of course God's able. The question is, in regard to you, is he willing and is he good-intentioned? And sometimes we have the picture of the God who kind of is like, you know, he's kind of like the teacher that just gets frustrated with us. We hadn't learned our lesson yet. 
I'm just going, man, you stupid people. Would y'all learn? I'm going to have to, here, I'm just going to have to blow your life up to teach you a lesson. I'm about to do some really mean stuff just so you'll get it. And we imagine God being the one that really works rough and negative circumstances sort of just to, to just to, you know, smack us around with sort of a kind of like, I, you're so dumb. How do I fix you? <laughs> Wake up. I mean, kind of this negative, nasty attitude. And I tell you, he's, he's not like that. He's patient beyond what you can imagine. We use a term, an English term called long-suffering regarding the Lord's patience. But it's, that term doesn't at all begin to express the Lord's patience. Long-suffering, we think, is something, somebody that's suffering long because they're having to wait. I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. I'm suffering the whole time. Would you please get this? Oh, my gosh, you're stupid. I'm dying. Please. Idiot, help. Come on, get it. And we imagine God to sort of have that, that sort of mentality towards us. He's suffering as he's being patient. That term is not at all what the, the terms in the Hebrew or the Greek explain as it relates to God's patience. God's patience is this thing where he's not at all like us. He's completely patient, and he's actually at peace while he's patient. He's not frustrated. He's not like over you. You know, you know, you're the person that just kind of drives you nuts. You just go, okay, I'm just over them. He, he's not telling anybody to talk to the hand, I promise you. He, he's just going, okay, you little sugar booger. Woo. Wow. A little slower than I imagined. I mean, it, it's not even that. He totally imagined it. He knows. He's never shocked. It's, he, he, he doesn't ever even say you're a little slower than I imagined. He goes, I imagined you to be this slow and more. Because you're slower than I thought. I mean, you're slower than you thought. <laughs> because I'm, I'm helping you. I'm a help. I'm a help to you in a time of trouble. I'm for you. I'm good intention toward you. I want to help you through this. He goes, I love you so much. I won't leave you as you are. He goes, yeah, I know you're having a hard time getting it. No problem. I'm here to the end. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm going to bring this to you. You're going to get it because I am here with you. I'm not leaving you. I like you. We imagine him being frustrated and agitated. I tell you, just not that way. And so I tell you, he will bring us into challenging uh, circumstances to help instruct us. And here's the main reason why. In challenging circumstances, you and I tend to pray more than when we're not in a challenge. You know what I mean? I mean... Let a trial happen, and man, we'll be in the house of prayer. Praise the Lord. But as long as things are going pretty good, it's like, you know, praise God, love you, Lord. High five, go about my day. But you watch. You watch. If there were to be some sort of thing like my dream, or some kind of even intense thing happen, a terror or something somewhere in our nation, we would have full prayer rooms. Because people tend to cling to the Lord more in times of trouble and trial. And so the Lord, because of his good intentions, he will, he will direct us and in, in allow challenging trials and situations to come into our lives to draw us to him. But it's not because he's like frustrated and angry, like he's trying to prove a point and like, you know, he's backhanding you. It's because he is so jealous for you, he doesn't want to leave you as you are. He doesn't want to leave you without knowledge of who he is and the way he feels about you. He doesn't want to leave you uninstructed. And so we, we've got to buy into not only the Lord's ability to deliver us, protect us, and see us through. We've got to buy into the Lord's good intentions to never leave us nor forsake us and to bring us through to cause us to grow and mature in the love of God and the knowledge of God because he's kind and good. If we will buy into the Lord's good intentions, hear me right here, this is an important point. If we'll buy into the Lord's good intentions concerning us, then we will consign ourselves to the Lord's leadership regardless of what comes. Say that another way. If we'll buy into the fact that God is kind and he only wants good for us, we will resolve our hearts to trust him 
even when we don't understand his leadership because we'll know it's good. It's a major, major thing we've got to land because here's the bottom line. David went through all these trials and challenges and stuff, but you never see him accusing God. You never see him turning on God. When he loses the throne, he doesn't turn on God. When he's running around in the cave of Adullam years, seven years, Saul relentlessly pursuing him day in and day out, he doesn't turn on God. He doesn't turn around and say, the Lord did this to me and the Lord's intentions toward me are evil. The Lord is wicked. I tell you, beloved, I tell you, let a little bit of pressing come on the church and let's find out how much accusation we really have in our heart toward the Lord's leadership. He wants to deliver us from being offended and and, and having accusation toward him and bring us into this place of absolute trust, fearless confidence in the Lord and his deliverance with a right understanding of his good intentions towards us. That is a major move. Oh, you ever, you ever met the person? Maybe you are the person, or maybe you've met the person, and all hell is breaking loose around their life, and they're just calm? And you're just like, how are you, like, your life, do you, do you get it? Your life is falling apart. And, and sometimes what we'll do is we'll be like, come on, get nervous. <laughs> you you're too calm for the, the, the scenario that you're in. You're, you're too at peace. Like, come on, freak out. And we see that calm person going through a trial and we think, wow, they're just out of touch with reality. Well, maybe they're not out of touch with reality. Maybe they're actually the only ones that are in touch with reality. Maybe they're in touch with a higher reality than their circumstances. And maybe the peace of God that passes understanding is guarding their heart and their mind. And they're not freaking out and stressing and fretting even in the midst of a trial. Why? Because they know God. Why? Because they've been in the secret place. Beloved, I want that. I want to be the guy that when the stuff is blowing up around me, people are like, aren't you concerned? I'm like, man, I, I know. My heart feels good. I trust the Lord. He's able and kind. He's a good leader. I'm just going to lean into him. Your life is in shambles, bro. Wake up. And you know, that God is good. It's blowing up around you. I'm trusting the Lord. I want to be that person that's kept in perfect peace through the trials, through the challenges, even if it infringes on my own comforts. (laughs) We're really peaceful so long as we got our air conditioner on. Love it. I'm telling you, we've got a weird Western reality. We have a sort of a standard of, it's like it's God if... If we're, you know, we're provided for, we got our air conditioning on, da, 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 da. Then the Lord's moving. But if the air conditioning got cut off and the lights were out for a minute, we'd be like, ah, the Lord has forsaken me. Headline, there are millions of believers worldwide that don't have air conditioning. Don't even have it. Can't even get it turned off because they don't have it. God is still God. Some of you might think, well, they're in nice countries where the wind's always blowing, 72 degrees. The Lord is taking care of their air conditioning. No, no, no. They're in countries where it's like 110 in the shade in the summer. You have to spray yourself with a water bottle just to go to bed to cool your body temperature down to 98.6 so you can sleep. And they're not freaked out over the, the loss of comfort. They expect it because they expect that following Jesus might cause them to incur trials and tribulations in this life. Just like we were taught in the New Testament that those who follow Christ will through many trials enter the kingdom. Paul really knew what he was talking about with that. So our question that we've got to answer is, is he good? Are his intentions towards us good? And uh, we know he's able, but is he, is he really kind intentioned toward us? Now, the other thing that I realize is this. Here's David. He's going, in the time of trouble, he will hide me in his tabernacle. In the time of trouble, he's going to set me high upon a rock. 
Now, our vision for what being hidden in the tabernacle of the Lord and set high upon the rock is, is I guarantee you it's way different than David's. You know how I know? Because when David was in the time of trouble, him being set high upon the rock was him living in the cave of Adullam. <laughs> that's, that's David's version of being set high upon the rock. On the run, Saul trying to kill him every day in the cave of Adullam with 400 guys that haven't paid their taxes and are kind of disgruntled. That's David's version of high upon the rock. David's version of he'll hide me in his tabernacle is on the run and you're building Ziklag in a foreign nation and Ziklag gets burned to the ground, coming back and your family and children and everybody's gone. That's David's version of being hidden in his tabernacle. See, God's picture of hiding you and taking care of you and providing for you is way different than ours. You know, we, we think it's all about being perfectly supplied and taken care of in our comforts as we live them in our lives today without any interruption. He goes, no, no, no. No, not a hair of your head. And Luke 21, he goes, not a hair of your head will be harmed. He goes, some of you will die but not a hair of your head will be harmed. <laughs> if I would have been there listening to Jesus in Luke 21, when he goes, listen, not a hair of your head is going to be harmed. Some of you are going to die, but not a hair. I would have gone and say, what? You just said not a hair, but some of us are going to die. What? What? What are you talking about, Willis? I would have been like, what is that? And his point is, it's way different. My protection and, and my leadership and my goodness and my caring and covering you, it's way different than what you imagine it to be. I'm not mostly concerned about your temporal comfort. I'm mostly concerned about your eternal destiny. Amen. That's a good place to say amen. Y'all missed that point. That's okay. He said, I'm not mostly concerned about your temporal comforts. I'm mostly concerned about your eternal destinies. There you go. I just gave you another chance. Yeah. Beloved, we got we to gotta get on, on board with this stuff. Because if shakings happen and they're going to, he said, I'm going to shake everything that can be shaken. I don't know if you've looked lately, but guess what? The United States is pretty shakable. $13.5 trillion of debt. I'd say we're pretty shakable. I'd say we're pretty shakable. You know, we, we're seeing a departure from Christianity almost in a wholesale way across our nation. At the same time, God has got rumblings and stirrings of revival, but there is a massive, there's not just sort of like we don't like Christianity in the public. There's like an anger against anybody who's like sold out to Jesus. There, we are so shakable, it's crazy. He is going to shake everything that can be shaken. Guys, I'm telling you, shakings are coming. They're coming. We have got to get to the place like David. You know what? Even if an army besieges me, even if war comes against me, I will be confident even in this. Why? Because I've trusted the Lord and I know his intentions toward me. I've been in his secret place and I know he's taking care of me because me and him are like this, not because I want to be like that, because he likes me. He wants to be close to me and he is going to cover me under the shadow of his wing. Even in this will I be confident, fearless confidence in a time of trial. Oh, beloved. If you don't fear what man can do to you, what can man do to you? If you're not afraid of what people can say or do, what can they do? Nothing. If God be for us, who can be against us? And that's where David lived. And that's what Psalm 27 instructs us. It instructs us to live in that place of fearless confidence, trusting in the Lord. And it's, beloved, it's because of living in intimacy with God. That's how David got there. 
intimacy with the Lord. And that's why Psalm 27.4 is positioned where it is in the chapter. It is the reason why David is able to be confident in trial, even in the most dramatic pressings, he's able to be confident and fearless because he's given his life to being intimate with the Lord. I love what he says. Psalm 26, verse 8. I just, I just, he goes, Lord, I've loved the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. This is the way I've lived my life. I've loved being before you. I love the Psalm 27. He goes, one thing have I desired of the Lord. Now think about it. David the commander of the armies of Israel, King David, the warrior king, I mean, a macho man. I mean, David has slain his 10,000s. I mean, just, just a, a macho guy. I mean, a warrior killed Goliath. And David goes, yeah, I've had all this power, all this money, all this prestige. They sang songs about him that even the foreign nations knew the songs. He goes, yeah, I mean, all that's, that's fine. But he goes, there's really one thing that matters to my whole life. I want to dwell in his house. I want to behold his beauty. I want to gaze on his beauty. You know, and some of us men, we're kind of like, well, I'm not sure I'm gazing on beauty. I mean, I'm not really into gazing on beauty. I think it's a little like for the women's ministry, for the artsy types. David, the warrior king, goes, there's really only one thing I'm interested in. It's not political power. It's not military might. It's not conquest over the armies of the enemy. It's not even killing guys like Goliath. There's one thing I'm interested in, gazing on beauty. I want to mention this, that gazing on beauty might not be as effeminate, man, as you might think it is. If David, the warrior king, is into it. Gazing on beauty might be pretty, like, testosterone loaded, you know, might be a pretty intense way to spend your life. He goes, I've had all this power, all this prestige. Because there's one thing I'm interested in. It's the presence of the Lord. I want to behold his majesty. I want to gaze on his beauty. And I want to interface. I want to inquire. I love David's attitude. Because, oh, I love the place where your glory dwells. I love the, the, the tabernacle. I love the habitation of your house. And so then we actually do get Psalm 91 with the right flavor to it. We love to quote Psalm 91. We love to go, nothing's going to ever happen to me. The righteous, you know, a thousand fall by side, ten thousand my right hand. It's not going to come on me. But we miss verse 1. 91, Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells, everybody say dwells. That's a requirement for the rest of the chapter, beloved. He who dwells. That word is, can be can be. Rightly translated, lives. He who lives in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Look, that's not just a little verse you're supposed to flippantly throw out there when you're afraid. Get on the airplane, you're afraid of, afraid of flying. I'm going to the Most High, abide the shadow of the Almighty. It's going to cover me in his wings. Whew, I feel better now. It's not for that. I'll tell you what it's for. It's about living a life in the presence of God all the days of your life in communion with God where you know his nature, you know the way he thinks about you, and you get to this place of fearless confidence and trusting God. Why? Because you've dwelt in his presence and you know he's got you. You know he's got you. Because he who dwells in the secret place He who dwells in the secret place, the Most High, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Man, I want to live my life, whether I'm in the prayer room or in my my prayer closet. I want to dwell in the secret place. Whether I'm in my car, at the restaurant, in the public, on the radio, here, my family, the football game. I want to have that constant communion. You can live in constant communion. It's called praying without ceasing. All is so easy. All you do is you take your thoughts and you make them in a conversation. And I'll be sitting at the football practice and go, man, Lord, that was a good hit. That little kid's a good linebacker. What do you think, Jesus? I'll talk to him about everything. They're like, well, that's not very spiritual, brother. No, that's what spiritual is. 
We don't have to do this thing where we separate sort of the secular from the spiritual. You live in communion with God. And then that's when everywhere your feet tread, he gives it to you. Everywhere you go, you are bringing the kingdom. Because you're constantly in communion with him. I tell you, when you live like that, you dwell in the secret place of the Most High. And then you don't care. Though he slay me, I'll praise him. If he kills me, it's going to be for my best. I get to go be with Jesus. Maybe that's what, maybe that's what needs to happen. If a grain of wheat goes in the down, unless it grows in the ground and dies, it bears no fruit. But if it goes in the ground and dies, it'll bear much fruit. You know what? There was a, an apostolic understanding of the New Testament church that their life was not their own. And that it didn't matter if they, if they were martyred or not. It didn't matter if they suffered or not. What mattered was that they'd live their life for the glory of Jesus in continuous communion with God. Oh, that a people in 2010, oh, that the church and the nation of the United States would live with that as their moniker. Jesus, for the glory of the Lamb, living for the glory of the Lamb, a reward worthy of His sufferings, regardless of what it means for my own comforts. Oh, man, amen. I want to live like that. I want to live, I want to live a heroic Christianity that's worthy of the hero that died for me. When you live that way, when you live intimately dwelling with him, you understand he's good. His mercies endure forever. You understand all his intentions towards you are good. And even, even if you're to lay down your life, nothing can pluck you out of his hand. Not a hair of your head will be harmed. There's a confidence you can get to in that place that God, you really are for me. If God be for me, who can be against me? Live in that place of soundness in your soul. You know what I mean? Just settled in your soul. Trusting in the Lord. Whether the economy is booming or not, it doesn't matter. God has got me. He's got me. All right, I'm going to land. I'll give you one verse. Second Corinthians. I'm going to give you two verses. Second Corinthians. Chapter 2, verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ Jesus and diffuses or manifests through us the sweet aroma of his fragrance in every place. Thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ Jesus. Christians, especially charismatics, we love to say we got the victory. You know what our problem is? Our victory, and what's in our mind about victory, it looks way different than what's in his mind about victory. If he's leading us in Christ's triumph, there was a cross in there somewhere, I believe. If I remember it correctly, there was a man more marred than any other human being on the way to the total victory over the devil. If he's leading us in his triumph, it seems to me, and he's manifesting, look at the verse, manifesting through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. Beloved, I want to propose that we're not only going to be fellowshipping with him in his glory, in the power of his resurrection, we're also going to, Philippians 3.10, be fellowshipping with him in his sufferings, being conformed to the image of his death. Let's get an apostolic Christianity. What I mean is one like what the apostles understood and lived. Let's get rid of this mentality of victory and, and, and blessing that only is, if, if our comforts get better, let's get rid of that idea and get a more scriptural comprehension of it that when we, when we get the victory of Christ, we also get the fellowship of his sufferings. That's reality. He's going to always lead me. I know it. He's always going to lead me in his victory. And he's going to manifest through me 
the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. You know what I realized? If you want to get the aroma out of the spices, sometimes you've got to crush them. If you want to get the oil out of the, the olive, you've got to crush it. You know what I think sometimes? We don't get the fragrance of Christ out of the church sometimes because we stand so far away from anything that would be to our breaking. There's times when he wants to put us on display as ones that will fellowship with him, even in suffering, hello, without offense and accusation in our heart toward him, so that from our soul, an aroma of Christ comes out that the world goes, oh my goodness, they actually believe this thing. This thing's real for them. See, our mentality of victory in the Western uh, church is way different than the biblical mentality. He goes, he's always going to lead you in his victory and his triumph in Christ Jesus. Well, fast forward, Revelation 12. He explains to us how the saints at the end of the age are victorious. Last verse. I remember I was sharing this with some friends of mine. And they said, uh, we overcome him by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony. I go, what's the rest of the verse say? And I remember my, my good, good, good friend said to me, what do you mean what's the rest of the verse say? That is the verse. I go, let's look it up. The end of the age, believers, overcoming Satan, that's the context. Revelation 12, verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, comprehending the justification, the authority that we have in Christ Jesus through the blood. Overcame him by the word of their testimony. Holding fast to the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord. Holding fast to the tenets of orthodoxy of our faith. Not giving a, a, a line away. Holding fast to the testimony of Jesus and his delivery, uh, delivering and liberating power in our life. The deity of Christ, God who came, became a man and died for us. Set us free from sin. Holding fast to that testimony. Thirdly, not living their life unto death. We get victorious by not loving their life unto death. That might be a little bit different vision of victory than we've had. I know it plays with me. But I want to get to that place where I can say to him, your leadership's perfect. I've not always understood the ups and downs, the trials and the challenges, but I know they've been for my good. I've not always understood the pains that I've felt, especially when I was going through it. I've not always understood the discipline of your love. I've not always understood it, but you're good. Your leadership is perfect. And I have that proclamation of living without offense. Having hearts, I mean, immersed in the knowledge of God, alive in intimacy, inquiring and gazing without offense in the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, I love it. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war may rise against me. Even in this, I'll be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. He's good. We can trust him. Amen.